Well, good morning. Welcome back to our Augustine series. We are on session number seven. We actually have the end in sight. I, I teased that there was no end to this series, but there is an end, and we will go 10. There will be 10 sessions as part of this series, so we're going to be 70% complete by the end of this one. We have finished the historical side of his life. I don't know if you were here last week, but we got to the year of his death. 430 AD was Augustine's death. So at this point, we are no longer continuing with the historical side, but we're going to zoom in a little bit on him in terms of different aspects of his life. So today we're looking at his life as a believer. What were the characteristics of his faith, his devotional life, his family life, uh, him as a believer? Next week, we'll be zooming in on Augustine in his teaching. What are the, the teachings that were very central to him, even unique to him, very important to him? And then week nine will be Augustine as a pastor. We'll zoom in on his job in the ministry, how he handled all of his responsibilities, that, that type of thing. And then week 10 will be a wrap-up on his legacy, the enduring legacy of Augustine, I've teased out that it's pretty deep, the legacy that he has left, how important his work was to the Reformation, which is important to us today. So you keep peeling back the layers, you get a lot of Augustine there. So that's a, a look at what's coming up ahead. So today, we are looking at his life as a believer, and the devotional question that we'll be considering is very relevant. How do I grow as a believer? And the second part to that, if I'm in a rut, how, how do I get out of a rut? You ever been in a rut in your faith before? You know, you're not growing, you feel like you're stagnant, or you need to push through, or you're trapped by a bad habit. Like, how do I grow as a believer? How do I get out of a rut? These are things that Augustine personally dealt with. We're going to get into some scripture later, but let's zoom in on his life <clears throat> as a believer. And of course... The central fact for his life as a believer is the same as the central fact for your life. That is conversion. His conversion to Christ at the age of 32 years old is the central, all-important fact of him as a believer. And that is true no matter if you convert at 4 years old, you convert at 20, or you convert at 50, or you convert on your deathbed at 84 no matter when it is, that is the central fact of your life because that central fact determines eternity. So that one moment when you are regenerated, made alive before God the Father, secures you for all of eternity into eternal life. There is no greater fact in your life as a believer than the moment you were converted to Christ. And that can happen from a very, very young age. Anybody here convert as a child? It can happen. And it's beautiful when it does. And even if we don't have firm memories of it, we should always look back to our conversion with a sense of thankfulness, gratitude, humility. Whenever, so I'm already teasing out a little bit of the answer, and I'm using that word tease too much. Uh, how do I get out of a rut? Like, if you go back to your conversion, go back to your conversion. Start thinking about that. Where you were, what Christ did, that's bound to help. Anyway, at 32 years old is his conversion. He looked at all of his life before that. This is not something he did during those 31 years. 
He looked at all of that as the Lord was preparing him to convert. All the stuff that happened, the fact that his father was a pagan until his deathbed conversion, his mother had to raise him in the Lord without really even being allowed to. His friends were not Christian. He didn't have a biblical ethic on sexuality. He had a concubine that he lived with. He had a son out of wedlock. And then all the grief that he went through too. All of these things, he went through depression. All of these things he looked at later on that it was all the Lord preparing him for that great moment of conversion because he wouldn't have converted before. If the Lord tried to unlock his grace, now the Lord is powerful to save at any moment, but in his own humanness, if the Lord tried to bring this conversion to him at 20 years old, when he's in Carthage and he's getting restless and he's a son out of wedlock, all this stuff, it would have been futile. He wasn't ready. And the Lord does that with us. Probably every single one of us in this room is converted at a different age. Or we learn certain things at a different age. You I think we should attribute that to the Lord knows that I wasn't ready for that before. And some things requires some life experience before you learn it, some maturing before you learn it. That's all by God's wisdom. And so instead of, God, why did you make me be a pagan for 32 years before you converted me? I take that type of attitude with God as though we are in a position to do that. It is, Lord, I am thankful that this was at 32 and not like my father at my deathbed. Or not at all. So that that perspective that we can take of our conversion can be mightily helpful in our devotional life. Mightily helpful in getting out of a rut. He was deeply conscious that it was God who found him and saved him. He never attributed his salvation to himself as though he was going on this journey. I'm going to find God and I'm going to believe in him on my terms. That is never how he approached his conversion. It was always that God unlocked him, essentially, to believe. Because he had no ability in himself. He was a pagan and a sinner by nature. We talked last week about, remember those nine grounds of heresy that we looked at, that Pelagius was condemned for. That one point about, we confess we are sinners because it is true, not from a sense of humility. He was deeply aware that I cannot cure my condition. Only God can cure the problem that I have. Now, even though he was a pagan, he recognized his sinfulness, he had that early influence of Christianity in his life. And the reason that's important for our discussion today is because that early influence of Christianity from his mother, he said, kept him from plunging into too deep a life of sin. Now, he was a man who... who committed a lot of sin no doubt about it but to look at some examples of how this is the case he was never anti-christian in a sense you know those people who seem like they're like they're out to go and mock christianity they go out of their way to put down people of another thought system or another religion like they're militant anti-christian not just non-christian He never took on that attitude, even though some of his friends did. And it was very common in his upbringing to have that idea. Remember, just a generation before he was born, Christianity was legalized. You couldn't even be a legal Christian in the empire until around the time his parents were born. And then he's born. It's not the state religion yet. That came a little bit later. But 
it's it's completely fine to mock Christians, to put them down, to be anti-Christian, but he wasn't. He even occasionally read scripture. He didn't believe in the scriptures, not at that time, but he would occasionally read them. He wasn't convinced of the truthfulness of it. In fact, early on, even though his mother is trying to get him into the faith somewhat, he would read the scriptures and think these are kind of for children. You know, he didn't take it too seriously. But yet, because of his mother's influence, he didn't become anti-Christian, and that's pretty important. Another way that this early influence uh, preserved him somewhat, think of the fact that he stayed faithful to his mistress, who gave him his son, Adiodatus. He stayed faithful to her for about 12 years. It would have been not only uh, acceptable for him to, to look elsewhere, to have another partner, but it would have been expected of him. A man of his stature, he came from some social class. He had a pretty good job teaching rhetoric. Like It was completely acceptable and expected that he would have other partners at, at the same time as his mistress or send her away and have another partner, have another kid, go to another woman. This would have been so okay for him to do and would have been encouraged because his friends did it. The people, All the boys around him were doing it. And in those days, the way that they thought about sexuality and marital fidelity and all this, uh, we may have spoken of this before, but the woman in the relationship, the wife, was expected to, to be faithful to her husband, but the husband was allowed to have some purveying, allowed to have a little bit more. That was, that was the culture in the, at that time. We'll talk about that a bit more when we look at his life as a pastor because he had to deal with a lot of that. Men who were like, why do, I, why do I only get to have sex with my wife and not other people? Like this was a, a serious pastoral issue that he had to come back to again and again. I think the quotes you'll see from that will shock you a bit. So he stayed faithful to his mistress when it would have been completely fine for him to go to somebody else. He didn't. He also had a longing for the truth I may have quoted, this is the most famous quote of his life. You've probably heard it in other contexts. This is right in the beginning of Confessions, a great work of his that I've quoted many times. He says, You give us delight in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You ever heard that line before? We are restless until we find our rest. That came from Augustine. He wrote that. He was a seeker of truth. And I don't know that you get that type of uh, perceptivity to the truth without that early influence of Christianity for him. But he certainly had it. He, was, he recognized how restless he was until he found that rest in his creator. And I submit to you that we are designed to thrive when we are in right relationship with God, with our creator. Another person has said before that we have this God-shaped hole in our hearts until it's filled by God. You know, for every single human made in his image with eternity on our hearts, there is something about us that is not complete until we are in right relationship with our creator. It's by design. We are designed to not fully thrive until we know God. That is why when you are speaking to somebody who's not a Christian, who's from another religion, or they claim they're of no religion at all, 
There is always an emptiness there, whether they consciously say it to you or not, because there's no peace in your heart and in your soul unless you are right with your creator. That's just the way God made it. We are in disarray before we find that rest with our creator. Now, he recounts a story from his youth, though. You can see the battle that he had between his upbringing, where he could have been completely pagan in every single aspect, and then that early influence of Christianity. He tells this story from when he was a youth. There was a pear tree close to our vineyard that was heavenly laden with fruit. There's a lot of fruit on this tree. Though it was not appealing, either for its color or its taste. Some of us young men went one night after we had stayed out late to play games in the street and carried off great quantities of that fruit, not to eat ourselves, but to give to the pigs after having only eaten some of them. We enjoyed doing this all the more because it was forbidden. He, I think the meaninglessness of that, there is this pear tree, it's not doesn't look good by color. They, they didn't like the taste. They tried a little bit of it, but they just picked and picked and picked just to give it to the pigs. And it gave them joy and pleasure to do this because it was forbidden. Just because I wanted to do it. I wanted... To... That was a story from his youth. He later on says on that same page that he, he said, quote, I love my own sin, not because of what it gave me, but for the pleasure of sinning in itself. Think of the perception that it takes to say that. But how true is it? When we sin, we will do things. Not even It won't even give us a benefit for doing it necessarily. It's just, I wanted to do it. The pleasure of doing wrong. It's when you steal for the first time and you get those jitteries. I haven't stolen. Well, anyway, you get those jitteries when the first time you do something wrong. And then the second time, it's... Yeah, not not quite as hard. Third time, it's a little easier. Fourth, fifth, sixth time, it's just the thrill of doing it. You're not nervous anymore. But then you got to find a new way to, to spice it up, steal something bigger. And you can translate that same line of thinking with other types of sin. Think, again, of the marriage relationship. Before the affair happened, you allowed yourself to look for a few extra seconds at first. And you took pleasure in those few moments that I get to look. Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll avert my eyes. But then you start looking at more images online, and then you start being okay with talking to people. Outside, you know, Then you're okay with going on lunch dates, and then keeps going and going. The more You try to get away with more and more, not even necessarily because it'll give you benefit, but just for the pleasure of the sin itself. Augustine was very perceptive to that. And also, do you have any stories like that of yourself where you think back to your youth or just when you were younger and you think, why did I do that? Like, those, like this is just a little pear tree story, but it's so vivid to him because it stands out. This was my life in sin. This is what sin is. Before I knew Christ, that's what it was. It's like that, I think, for all of us. It might not be a pear tree, but you ever have those things that you think about? It's like, why did I do that? See, his systems in his life were all directed towards himself. Whatever gave me pleasure, whatever made me feel good, that's, that's what he chased after. The systems in his life, you can replace systems with habits or foundations. All of it was just directed towards me, me, me. 
There were numerous intellectual issues that helped him along his way to conversion. We talked about Manichaeism, the dualism thing. There's evil in the world, the, the battling forces of good and evil. That helped, that whole uh, time helped get his brain into thinking of ultimate issues. The problem of evil, that was big. And he wanted to resolve that even before he became a Christian. That helped. He had this inner restlessness. He fought depression. He wondered what was the purpose of life. You remember how depressed he was in Milan when he saw that homeless man, joyful and seemingly with no worries at all, and here he was, ostensibly successful and miserable. These types of things helped him along his way to that great moment of conversion. But the central point in his conversion, and all conversions, is that moment of conviction of sin. See, we can put a lot of priority and emphasis on the intellectual issues, at least for those who think along those lines. I, I love the intellectual issues, the philosophical ones, the deep theological ones. I love that stuff. You're not going to save somebody by convincing them with Kalam's cosmological argument that there has to be a creator. That doesn't get somebody to repent of their sin and take up Jesus as their savior, just to know that fact. An intellectual assent to God doesn't save you any more than an emotional assent to God will save you. Hey, God, take pity. I, I'm so sad. I want you to make me happy. Oh, these people treat me badly. Make me happy. An emotional assent won't convict you of your sin and make you right before God either. The only thing that makes you right before God is in that moment when you recognize that I have a moral and spiritual problem and I can't solve it. That is the, what we can call the conviction of sin moment. I can't be right with God by my own ability. So that, and he, he wrote so much about this, that is what ultimately got him converted, was that recognition that I have a moral spiritual problem that I can't solve. My intellectual ability can't solve it. My rhetoric ability can't solve it. My rhetorical ability. Just the grace of God. And it's like that when you're trying to witness to people, by the way. If you're trying to witness to people and you're just focusing on God has a purpose for you, God loves you and can make you happy, God can give you your desires, you're winning them to serve themselves with those types of things. As, like, like, think, God loves you and has a purpose for you. Put yourself in the non-Christian's place. Christian tells you, God loves me and has a purpose for me. Huh. That's awesome because I love me and I have a purpose for me too. This is great. You see, what we cannot do is win people into the kingdom by pragmatic means, simply intellectual means, or emotional manipulation type means. We win them by their recognition that they have a moral spiritual problem that they can't solve. That has always been the heart of the gospel. That has always been what has been the backdrop of revival in North America, the Reformation, this idea that I can't be right with God. And so this recognition was the central moment of his life as a believer. And then, of course, we talked about um, the story with the child saying, Toye lege, take up and read. And he opened up that scripture, and it was that Romans passage about not serving yourself. And, and he, he broke down, and it was great. But that was the central fact, was his conversion. So now the systems in his life, they begin rearranging. 
When before the systems of his life were about himself, he converts. And it, we, we said before that the change that he had was instantaneous. But the implications took some time to catch up. Like he didn't always recognize, okay, what exactly do I have to refix, do I have to fix here or change my perspective on or grow in? It took a few months, like any new believer. You gotta, you spend some time working on them, discipling them, at least we should be. So the implications took some time, but he was an instant change. The systems in his life start rearranging. Now let's move to his devotional life. He's a believer at this point. How did he, what was his devotional life like? Well, he was regularly involved in the spiritual disciplines. Now, I say spiritual disciplines, and you probably have a couple things that instantly come to mind. Bible reading, prayer, those are, those are the two big ones, but they're not the only ones. Daily, he would read scripture. And a quick note on scripture. We take for granted the fact that every single one of us in this room can have a Bible, a full Bible, one that they can actually read. That is not the fact for the majority of Christian history. Not just Christian, but even Jews. In the Old Testament and New Testament times, until the printing press came, you didn't have a full Bible. The only ones who had a full Bible was the church might have one in their ownership that they had to chain to the pulpit because people would steal it and try to sell it and then you don't have a full Bible in your church anymore. So sometimes Protestants will uh, criticize the Catholics, for instance, thinking about Reformation times, that they locked the Bible to the pulpit, kept it under lock and key, didn't let the people have the scriptures. There's truth of the fact that they wouldn't give them the pure scriptures, but if you didn't chain that thing in your church, someone was going to steal it, and you don't have a Bible anymore in your church. So like, no, that wasn't... Like it's a complete misconception about about that whole idea. It's not a legitimate criticism. So if you had a Bible, the vast majority of times it would be just a few books or a few chapters, and more often than not, all that they would have is the Psalms. The fact the chance that they would have the Gospel of Matthew, John, the letter to the Romans was small. If they had any of the Bible, it was probably the Psalms because that was their song book. That's, that's what they sung. They, they put musical, uh, they, they turned the Psalms into music, which they were written as, and that's what they would sing. And so if you had it, you had Psalms. You didn't have anything else. And even then, most people couldn't read. So there's another issue. Even if you had scripture, you couldn't read it. Most people. Augustine was educated. He came from some social class, he was able to read, and he had he had more scriptures than most people had, especially when he became a pastor, then he had access to everything, which was great. So he read the scriptures daily, which, again, we take that for granted, the fact that we can do that. They couldn't do it, most people back then. He would be involved in prayer. A lot more people back then would have to be more involved in prayer and singing because you didn't have the Bible reading part that you even could do. So to make your to grow in your relationship with God, you they devoted way more time to prayer than we do and way more time to singing in their homes privately, singing in as part of family worship. They sang all the time, which was pretty much always the Psalms. He was involved in a lot of writing and journaling. The book Confessions, which I've quoted many times, that is an example of his journaling. Like he directs that book to God. 
and it's in the perspective like oh uh, before i knew thee i would blah 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 like it's directed towards god knowing that other people are going to read it and benefit from it so he was journaling he's doing a lot of writing a lot of singing a lot of prayer he gets to do scripture reading and corporate worship <coughs> coming to church again this is a very different context now than back then but he would preach an average of four to five sermons a week the average sermon time was about 45 minutes this guy preached a lot and we'll talk about that again when we look at his life as a pastor but in order to do all of this his systems needed to be strong he needed godly habits he needed his devotional life to be secure and to be constantly growing or he could have never done any of that you would have never heard about augustine of hippo if he didn't have solid systems underneath all of this. Um, so upon becoming a Christian, his view of God completely changed. We talked about the intellectualism thing. He stopped seeing it as one where you're just intellectually ascending, but God was to was actually, our relationship to him is based on a relationship of love and not just love, wishy-washy feeling love. Uh, objective love based on the scriptures how do i love god how do i love my neighbor you'll obey my commands you will do what i have said so he sees that it's a relationship of love god is to be admired and trusted personally so if you're in that type of relationship with a god rather than this manichaean version where it's just some impersonal force at war with evil like you're not having a personal relationship with that type of deity well, you are with the Christian God, with the true God. So if you're in a personal relationship with that God, that means that you bring something to that relationship in the form of your Bible reading, your prayer, your singing. There's another thing that he did, which was a little bit unique to him. He engaged a lot in confession. Not confession in the sense that he goes to a confessional booth and a priest is going to hear him and then absolves him of the guilt. Not the Roman Catholic version of confession. But he made a practice of regularly confessing his sin to God in his prayers. Martin Luther was partly inspired by him in that, you know, how Martin Luther would like beat himself with how much he would confess his sin to God and to others. And the people around him were like, Martin, shut up. Like, stop. We don't need to hear every single thing that you've ever done. But Augustine would confess to God all the time. He wrote a book called Confessions. And not only to God would he confess all these sins, but he made a practice of if, if he wronged one of his brothers and sisters, he would personally go and he would make it right with them. People recognized this in him. But we do have to put an asterisk on that because he is a pastor. And he was concerned that as a pastor, if I'm going around confessing to all these different people privately, what I've done wrong, what I thought wrong, what I didn't do right, how quickly can you lose the respect of the people that you are pastoring over? See, if you do it a little bit, it shows that you recognize when you've wronged somebody, you care about them, you love them, you wanna make a relationship right. But what if you do it a lot? Don't you start th thinking about that person as, wow, they're my pastor? They don't seem very above reproach. You know, like, he's wary of this fact that if I confess too much all the time, I'm going to lose all their respect. But he's somebody who wanted to always make things right with people and to confess where he went wrong. So it's a balancing game for him. And 
even if he would have wanted to confess every single thing, it's on a human level, you can very quickly lose everybody's respect. But we have to also recognize that our pastors, our leaders, our teachers, we are not some super, some super spiritual, I don't commit sin like you guys commit sin type thing. Like if you knew all of the thoughts and the sin and what is in the heart of ministers of the gospel, you would probably think as well, you have no business being my pastor. And you know what the pastor would say? You're right. Because I know that I don't deserve to be shepherds of men and women, to be overseers of your soul. That is something that only God gives, unlocks, grants to particular people to do, not because they are worthy. And any pastor who is aware of what, how the scriptures talk, no, I'm not worthy of this. It is purely by God's grace that I can do this. I remember a Billy Graham interview and he was interviewed by this young lady who was like fawning over him and how great he was and all this stuff. And she is just putting praise upon Billy Graham. And he said, ma'am, if you knew how dark my heart was, you wouldn't say any of these things. Right? Like this, this is the reality that Augustine recognized one that you're, that our pastors ought to recognize, that all pastors ought to recognize. It is a position, it is a task given to us, not out of personal worthiness, not as though we are so perfect and y'all aren't, nothing like that. None of us deserve this. So confession, he, but he had to play a balancing game on the confession thing. His devotional life was vibrant. I've already hinted that he needed to have a vibrant devotional life in order to be Augustine of Hippo that we know of today. To do all the things that he did, he needed a vibrant and active devotional life, one that was daily being done. There's no no skip days per se. Now, sometimes, even in our own lives, we can get very busy and miss our couple chapters or whatever we do in a day, and we try to catch up the next day. And there's, there's certainly grace in those instances. But if you then allow yourself to miss that one day, and then, oh, okay, I'm going to miss another day, and then I'll catch up on day three. Then day three comes around, oh, I have a lot to do. I can't get to it all. Uh, i, I got to go do, do, do another task. And then you skip that day. It's how easy we can get out of a habit, get out of the systems that are fueling our relationship with God. We can so quickly get out of them. If you let your habits start slipping, start pushing them off, or you haven't established them in the first place. And that might be the, the saddest part, is that very, very many Christians don't have vibrant and active devotional lives. And I don't say that to anybody's shame, but I do say that, that for the fact that how can we expect a vibrant and active church in our country, in our continent, if the very believers who make up that church don't have a vibrant and active devotional life before God. It's not going to happen. If the system is corrupt, the underlying foundations, the habits, if that's corrupt, that will show in the public sphere, that will show in how people are preaching, how we confess to each other. If the foundation is diseased, the fruit is diseased. So our systems 
We've got to think about how is my relationship, this personal relationship with God, how is it being fueled or is it not being fueled? So his devotional life was vibrant. Family and personal life. I'm going to take a couple minutes to now go into the kind of elephant issue with him, which is he was faithful to a woman who is the mother of his son, and he sends her away. And he remains unmarried for the rest of his life, as does she, allegedly. He remains celibate for the rest of his life. This was a choice of lifestyle that he made. But we've already talked before that this is not how we would advise people today. One of you converts, we would say, hey, maybe think about marrying them and converting your family and raising your child in the Lord. Like, like we wouldn't think split up the family, take the child away from both parents, and that's, that's what you should do. But it's a very different context back then, and this will show the biggest gulf of our understanding and their understanding of things like marriage, child rearing. His mistress was actually sent away before he converted. Even before he was a Christian, he sent her away. And the lesson to be learned there is that marriage back then, and in, even in places today, it's not primarily viewed as a love-filled emotional arrangement. Actually, marriage was a business arrangement back then. You got married because your social classes were aligned, that he would get the benefits of a sexual relationship and a child, she would get the benefits of security and he would provide and she would also get to mother a child. Like it, it's more for the benefits that each person offered to each other. You would do it on almost a business-like arrangement. So when his mistress is sent away and Augustine's mother, Monica, wants to find him a proper wife, the option that she presents to him is a 10-year-old. Now that makes us go, oh boy, absolutely nobody would have thought that was weird back then. He was 30, she was 10. She couldn't get married for two more years. So he has to wait two years to marry this girl, to have a legitimate wife. And nobody would have thought twice about that. In fact, they would think that you're weird for gasping about it. Like that, we don't understand this, but for them, marriage is not based on a love emotion relationship. It just wasn't. And they would say that if it is based on that, you're basing it on a very faulty foundation, that as soon as you your feelings and all that goes away, are you still going to choose the, the commitment that you had to that person or not? For them, it was all about the commitment. And if you get the love and the emotions part, like that's great if you get it. He had that with, with his mistress. He did not like the option his mother put in front of him, and it didn't happen. And so he remained unmarried and celibate for the rest of his life, he didn't have any surviving children. Adiodatus died as a teenager. He remained single like Paul. Now, he never denounced marriage as an institution. In fact, he so burned in this desire for a wife. And the way he put it, there was no one woman in particular that he was looking to marry, but he loved women in general. This is before he's a Christian. And he just had that desire for intimacy and for him, when he comes to the Lord, and especially when he hears that passage about not gratifying the flesh, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, uh, that passage basically completely convinced him that for me, I need to choose celibacy. Like this is 
something that I can't, if I give into this, I, I'm, a, I'm a goner. I know I will idolize this. It was, so he never denounced marriage as an institution, said that you shouldn't do it or everyone should be celibate like me. But for him, he, he saw that it was the right choice for him in his circumstances. It's tough for us to necessarily understand all of it, but that's the way it was. God gave him the gift of celibacy after he converted. That's the other thing to recognize. Singleness and celibacy is not a gift to those who don't have the gift of it. Like, it's not the ideal, actually, to be celibate your whole life, to remain maritally apart from somebody your whole life. You can do that. You can do it or not do it. The Bible gives both options. But the, the being single and celibate for your life, that is a gift that God has to give you. You have to be able to do that. And if you're not able to do it, it's not a gift. Like, that's actually enslavement if you don't have the gift of singleness and celibacy. So... He only was given that gift after he converted, and it was the right choice for him. But that's, again, cultural, cultural considerations play large in that. So he didn't have much of a family, especially after they all died. Uh, his closest relationships were with his friends. He had a few very close friends, as opposed to many kind of close friends. It was a few very close ones. And that was the, the amount of relationship that he got. He had a close relationship with the pastors who were under him. He's the bishop in Hippo. He has a large staff of, large. He has a staff of pastors under him. He didn't view them as employees or on some like contract basis. For him, he viewed the pastors that he was with as a community of dedicated, like-minded Christians heading towards a goal. We'll talk about that more in his pastoral life in a couple weeks. So that's how he viewed the pastors under him. But getting back to the systems talk, he was able to be what he was and do what he did because underneath all of these different considerations was a vibrant and active devotional life. His systems were strong. And I'm repeating that phrase throughout this session because when we think about the question, how do I grow as a believer? How do I get out of a rut? I submit to you that you will rise and fall based on your systems. I don't know why I had a second line there. Oh, because the word your was there. You will rise and fall based on your systems. If you have in your life a habit of daily Bible reading, daily prayer, if you confess sin to other people, you serve your church, you sing, if you have this vibrant devotional life, your system is one that when the hard time comes, when the grief comes, when your son dies, when your mom dies, like everything that Augustine went through, job loss, when that happens, your system protects you from sliding too deep back into the depression that he knew so well. Because he had a vibrant and active devotional life, his system was strong, it protected him. See, when we have that relationship with God that is vibrant, it helps you rise when those situations come that would threaten to take you down. That is why we cannot be negligent of family worship, of 
teaching our children the scriptures, of singing with them, of us ourselves being in the Bible. And I read the Bible every day, and wherever I am in scripture, I then read two psalms. I want to always have, and I repeat them. So currently I'm in Matthew, and I'll read a little bit of Matthew. And then when I'm done Matthew, I read two more psalms. And that is just part of my devotional life. And if I, like, I have grown so much by having that as part of my discipline. So now when things start looking, I don't know, when I'm threatened to get anxious about something, I can think of the fact that in Psalm 139, it says, the darkness is not dark to you, right? Like I can be threatened or tempted to pull myself into this dark line of thinking, oh, woe is me and blah, blah, blah. Well, the darkness is not dark to God. He knows what he's doing. He can pull me out. He has a plan. So think of your systems. In 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 8, uh, Paul says this to Timothy, a pastor. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, having trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Present life. Your godliness will, give, will bring benefit in the present life and the life to come. That is a promise in the scriptures. Check your systems. Check your devotional life. Check how you relate to other believers. How are your systems? That was the last one here. The encouragement is to check your systems. And if you don't have much of a system right now, although everybody does, it just might not be a good system, then the encouragement is to begin. I can't make you. All I can do is, is ask you to. And say, the scriptures have beauty and godliness and truth and conviction in them that will help you to have a system that is secure when the wind and the waves come. Oh, if I didn't have a system, I'd be gone. I think anybody who's gone through some things would say the same thing. Check your systems. All right, let's pray and we'll come back to look at Augustine. Eight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, once again for teaching us about this man who you used so mightily in the past. Teach us about our devotional lives and the importance of having vibrant, active devotional life before you and how that affects our, our interactions with other believers. Let us train ourselves up for godliness. Prepare us now for the worship service. Amen.